McFadden, the Events and Marketing Director at Greenlight Bookstore, and we are so excited to be hosting Sean Brock in Brooklyn tonight. He is here to launch his new book, South, and he's going to be discussing the book with Kat Kinsman, so you are in for an excellent conversation. Uh, before we turn the stage over to them, just a couple things to mention. We want to say a huge thank you to the folks at Artisan for working with us on this launch. They are fantastic. And also to the team at the Bell House for making this happen in this beautiful space. We love the literary community of Brooklyn, and it's so cool that this could all come together. So allow me to introduce this evening's speakers. Kat Kinsman is currently the senior editor at Food & Wine for Digital and Print. She's worked previously as senior food and drinks editor at Extra Crispy, managing editor at CNN Eatocracy, and editor-in-chief and then editor-at-large at Tasting Table. She is the author of the book, High Anxiety, Life with a Bad Case of Nerves, and the founder of Chefs with Issues. And she hosts the cooking show, No Pressure. She's gonna be talking tonight with our featured author, Sean Brock. He is the founding chef of the award-winning Husk Restaurants and the chef slash owner of Audrey and Redbird, opening next year in Nashville. His first book, Heritage, was the winner of the James Beard Award for Best American Cookbook and the IACP Julia Child First Book Award in 2015, and was called the Blue Ribbon Chef Cookbook of the Year by the New York Times. He won the James Beard Award for Best Chef Southeast in 2010, and was a finalist for Outstanding Chef in 2013, 14, and 15. His TV resume includes Chef's Table and The Mind of a Chef, for which he was nominated for an Emmy. Raised in rural Virginia, Brock is passionate about preserving and restoring heirloom ingredients. In his new book, South Essential Recipes and New Explorations, Sean shares his recipes for key components of Southern cuisine, highlighting regional differences and exploring key Southern food knowledge. The book has already been named a best new cookbook of fall 2019 by the New York Times, Food and Wine, Epicurious, Grub Street, and more and has been praised to the skies by fellow chefs and food writers, including Natalie Dupree, Frank Stitt, and David Chang, who writes, every region everywhere needs a Sean Brock. Sean reminds us what it really means to eat and cook Southern food and how we can all be better custodians of the delicious ingredients we have available in our own parts of the world. We are incredibly lucky to get a taste of what he knows in South. So you are in for something really special this evening. Kat and Sean are gonna be talking on stage and then you'll have a chance to ask your questions toward the end. So please join me in welcoming to the stage, Kat and Sean. fat behind their ears or was that just a name? <laughs> I had to put my hat on because my, I was like trying to fix my hair and realized that I greased it down with ham fat. I mean, that's the, not the first time you're like all shiny up here. <laughs> well, you were kind enough to walk us through a tasting, so I'm actually going to spring a small blind tasting on you. I want to see if you can identify what is in this jar. Sniff it, taste it. <laughs> Having a little moment here. I will not be surprised if you know it straight off the bat. This is watch a pro do it. 
This is maybe like a spice bush vinegar. It is a vinegar that you made in 2013 and called it the finest vinegar you have ever made. <laughs> that is uh, the, the Concord grape vinegar. Yes, that that's you what made. I could not put my... Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so keep that in your pocket tonight. <laughs> so this vinegar was the first vinegar I made with my grandmother's vinegar. So this has that, has my grandmother's acetobacters in there. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, and I was like, where did you get this? <laughs> I, uh, I, wow, I feel like, wow, wow, wow. Yeah, it's got that moment. Oh, gosh, I wish there was enough to pass around to everybody, but it's such a, a visceral thing. It's got such particular... A Jolly Rancher going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. so, yeah, it's good stuff, right? Thanks for bringing that. Y'all are going to be happy to know that there is an entire giant section on vinegar in this cookbook. Yeah. <laughs> People are cheering for vinegar, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is a beautiful thing, but you cannot make southern food and have a southern pantry without uh, vinegar. And I want to talk, but first I want to bring around the, the conversation to a point of contention for a lot of people that I think you assert doesn't need to be. If you would talk to us about cornbread and why that is important, what you had to say about cornbread in here. Because I, I heard a few like ooze from the audience, like this is gonna get spicy, but I wanna hear what you have to say about it. Well, I would say if I had to pick one thing that encompasses all the things I love about the South and Southern cooking is when the skillet comes out of the oven and you just tear into it and that first waft it's so hypnotizing it's like just that smell is a great example of how we can use food to trigger nostalgia and family and just wonderful memories because i go straight to my grandmother's kitchen did she teach you how to make cornbread yes you know Recently, I've realized how amazing my mom is. At, oh, at your mom's bread. awesome. Like, <laughs> I had the pleasure of getting to eat his mom's uh, chicken and dumplings um, a few years ago, and it was, I still hold that as such a holy moment, and the notion mm -hmm. of you two cooking together was really an incredible That was amazing story. because we, we were, it was a lunch for how many hundred people? I think probably at least four or five hundred people, maybe more than that, Southern Foodways Alliance Symposium. In so I didn't tell my mom that part. <laughs> and she's very shy and I convinced her to come to, to this the Southern Foodways Alliance Symposium to cook with me to make chicken and dumplings and, and we made like twenty different things. But it was the day of and I was we were trying to get a strategy on how we were gonna make all these dumplings transport them from the prep kitchen over to the site and all these chefs are all huddled up trying to figure it out and she's like no 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 i didn't come all this way to make shit dumplings <laughs> like mom you have to trust me you can't make these a la minute she's like i don't even know what a la minute is <laughs> and so we, we made her this like ring of fire so she's, it's all these turkey fryers with chicken broth on each one, and she's just in this circle 
just dropping dumplings nonstop. And, like, it was unbelievable to watch. And those dumplings were perfectly cooked and then served to the guests. I would have never had the courage to do that. They were such a beautiful thing. And I, I ended up thinking about these dumplings a lot um, because it was, it, 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 there's this fairly epic lunch that happens um, every year at the Southern Foodways Alliance Symposium. I mean, some of these have become something like Woodstock. Oh, were you there for when Ashley Christensen threw down all the vegetables? Or like, ah, oh, did you have Vivian Howard's tomato pie? And it just becomes this, this sort of like cultural uh, touch point. And people were taking pictures. Oh, I love, like, it smells so good. I wish we could just like waft it into the room. <laughs> but it's really beautiful. And, but it, it becomes this cultural touch point. And so people, are, of course, are you know, Instagramming it and stuff. But when the plates came, they actually didn't take pictures because it, it, it's not a pretty dish. And this <laughs> really pissed me off. I was like, do you not realize you're in the presence of like, God's chicken and dumplings, basically, here? But what I loved flipping through this book is there's pictures of fantastically ugly food yes. in there and it's the most beautiful thing in the world mm -hmm. so let's talk about that the the sort of humbleness of of some of this food and why that makes it so wonderful it's cooking with a simplicity that i think all chefs strive their for their entire careers but grandmothers just do it mm -hmm. and that generation just knows and appreciates the this, this, this simple act of cooking things slowly and allowing the flavor to develop that way. Um, I mean, those are the things that, I, 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 that really haunt me the most, are those just single ingredients in a pot, slow cooked with who knows what the grandmas are throwing in there. They don't tell all the secrets. Um, yeah, like the, there's a there's a recipe in here for greasy beans, which is a varietal of string beans that um, is indigenous to, to my area of southern Appalachia. And if you took Harry Covert or any genetically engineered green beans and made that recipe with them, it wouldn't taste very good. It's and that shows to me just the importance of saving these things and, and really celebrating them. Yeah, and it takes time too to do all of these things too. I know that you have saved heirloom varieties of seeds. You have gone and documented these recipes. The, uh, the picture I'm thinking of in particular where I opened it up thought like, that's so ugly, it's so great, is peanut butter gravy. I've, I've, I know of chocolate gravy. I'd heard of that, and that's always people's party trick. Well, do you know about chocolate gravy? Um, I had never heard of peanut butter gravy. I before. hadn't either. So tell us how that came about. It was just an accident. <laughs> I'd I mean, it was the last photo shoot of the book, and it just kind of happened. It was amazing. <laughs> And I think that's the thing that's really, that I also in particular love about this book. There is a tremendous amount about heritage and where these, and where recipes come from. But then there is also, so when I started first learning about Sean, uh, and we, we've known each other a pretty long time, and I was fascinated because you were the molecular gastronomy guy making uh, bubblegum uh, candy, like candy floss. You were, you were at McCready's, you were doing all oh, kinds of- Oh dear, we were making foie gras cotton candy oh, and country right. ham cotton candy. and. Yeah. 
bizarre it, stuff. But it's an interesting thing, though. <laughs> it's it's such a weird sort of like I feel like I just pulled out the deep cut there, like <laughs> like the obscure seven inch like right there. <laughs> but it was so funny because then the, the notion of you morphed in my head from this guy who was doing all of these these things in Charleston at this incredibly storied restaurant because McCready had been around for since the like seventeen seventy eight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was, yeah, so it's, it's such a funny thing to think of kind of the dichotomy of all these things I know about you because I saw you go from that to doing a menu um, there that you were recreating dishes that were, you know, colonial recipes and, and, and back before and doing them sort of note perfect there. And that's what I love about this book so much is that there are things that are very like handed down through generations, but then there are also recipes for, that include koji and miso and all of, all of these other sort of things that have been in other cultures for a long time that maybe people are starting to use in the US more. Can you talk about sort of working through that, the past and the present and the future of all these things that you're doing? Well, I mean, it stems from me just being insanely curious and uh, just constantly wondering what if, what if. But I've come to realize that in order to keep the story active, to keep it as part of the narrative, you have to make it a little bit more interesting. I have to make it a little bit more interesting. If you just made the perfect version of chicken and dumplings every day, it'd be really, really amazing, but you might lose people's attention. But if you figure out a way to sneak in another layer of an intense flavors without changing the appearance of it or, or the story, then you have their attention again. Yeah. And I think that's how you push it forward. Yeah, because the thing is, it's an homage to a lot of things that have been around for a very long time, and also to where a lot of these things have come from, because um, we can get into this in a second. There's a really tremendous through line of micro-regionality that I really love, um, because you know the South is not a monolith. It's a lot of smaller uh, communities and, and regionalities of ingredients. Um, and Southern food, to me, a lot of the core of it is it's what's growing there, but it's also all of the cultures that have been brought into it as well, because you know a lot of people in the South were, you know, brought there, um, and you know, against their will, and managed to preserve their own food heritage by bringing seeds, by bringing, finding an equivalent, whatever it was that was growing uh, where they were. And, uh, you know, and other, other groups have migrated that way, and, and the South has become this really rich and amazing thing. Um, so I'd love to talk through a, a, some about how your notion of what the South is has expanded and what you mean by micro-regionality. Well, I think the, the biggest lesson I've learned creating this book is that I, I know nothing. That's pretty good. Uh, and that's an amazing thing to realize. And, uh, it's very hopeful. The more I dig, the more I realize I don't know anything. I do believe that there's a formula to how a cuisine becomes what it is. And that formula is, is very simple. It's the, it's the immigrants, it's the, the, the indigenous people, their traditions, their flavors, it's their ingredients, but it's the ingredients that can thrive in that place because of its geography. And once that formula 
works its, itself into making sense, that's how a cuisine naturally forms. And a good example of that, if you, uh, well, I grew up going down into my grandmother's basement where there were, I mean, it was kind of scary as a kid. All these smelly crocs everywhere with like rocks floating on top of them and pillowcases and murky water. Then my grandmother would just come down there and stick her arm in there and pull out an ear of corn and just start chomping on it, which is what I do now. <laughs> but that's a great example of that part of Appalachia having a lot of German immigrants and really seeking the flavor of their place. You, when you're born into a culture, when you're born into a cuisine, I believe that it's like it's such a, it runs through your veins, it's in your blood, it's in your DNA, and you are wired to crave it because that's what comforts you. And if you're from Germany and you find yourself in Appalachia, there's corn everywhere, you make sauerkraut from corn. I mean, I didn't put that together until like 10 years ago, but I thought sour corn was such a normal thing for my family to eat all the time. I assumed that it was just a southern thing. Yeah, and it is. And now it is. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of sour corn in the book, by the way, which is... A... It's really fun to not tell people it's sour corn and then just have them taste it. Yeah. Because your brain says, oh, sweet corn. A lot of people spit it out. I think one of the greatest dishes that I've ever had, I remember um, there's a woman named Sarah Simmons who used to have a restaurant here called City Grit, and she made this, this dish, and it was a beautiful um, bowl of grits, and it had pickled corn on top of it. I think there was maybe a little ham or something, and like not a m month or maybe a week goes by that I don't think about that particular dish. I think there might have been some braised greens in there too, and it's just grown in my head throughout all the years just the, those particular moments of what this thing could be because I had never had corn that had been sour before. But so much of that stuff happened, sour corn, um, ham, all of these other things, because people had to make do with what they had. This is, a lot of this is based in, it's a poor people's cuisine in a lot of, in a lot of the ways. Like yes, they're the, the sort of more expensive um, ingredients and things, but people have to, through seasons and through economic realities and through access, make do with what they have. So let's talk through your grandmother's basement and that, what was she, what was she making in there? Well, the kitchen was always a hub of activity. There was always prep happening. Mm -hmm. And those, those were my chores as a kid. And there was always preservation going on. And once I went to culinary school and started to talk to my friends about the food of my family, none of them had ever heard of any of it. And so I started to realize how special it was. And so I would plan these trips home to, to my grandmother's house and just raid her basement. Mm -hmm. And she didn't like that <laughs> because that's so much work. It's you know? and, so much. If you've ever put up peaches, oh my gosh, it's a pain in the ass. So worth it in keep, the middle of winter. Yeah, she would keep me like to a four to six jar minimum per trip. I can see that. Which is pretty generous. Yeah, that's a and lot. I, of and I would have to like on the drive there. I'm like, hmm, maybe I'll get two sour corns. <laughs> 
and it was just always such an amazing thing to bring back to uh, Charleston and have people taste these these unique flavors. And I was 20 years old at the time, and so looking back now, it's it's just amazing to look back and, and see that. Yeah, and, and it's such an interesting thing when when Southern food. I think when Southern food leaves the region, the notions that people have about it are really insulting in, in, a, in a lot of different ways. Um, I grew up in Kentucky, um, northern Kentucky, uh, but still, I, I, you know, I go off to school in Baltimore, people at Kentucky, what are you doing wearing shoes? And, uh, you know, and just like all these like <laughs> ridiculous generalizations uh, about things. And I am ashamed to say, I didn't grow up eating uh, grits and I didn't have them until a boyfriend I had in, in um, in Baltimore forced me to eat them because I had a particular notion of food. Oh, I don't want to be associated with that somehow. And I had this internalized shame about it. And that breaks my heart. And now it is my favorite cuisine on, on the planet. Um, I think especially low country food and uh, especially uh, New Orleans food from New Orleans is, is really important. But it was, it was an emotional thing, sort of getting over that hump and realizing this is food to really be proud of. Um, so when you're, you're off at cooking school with fancy people and stuff, how did you, how did you assert the importance of, of this food to the people around you? I made them eat it. <laughs> you just make them eat it and then it speaks for itself. That's, that's, that's the beauty of it. It's, I mean, it really does speak for itself. When you taste that ham, it's like your mind just becomes blown. Yeah, it was kind of a holy moment earlier for people who were here for this, the, the ham tasting portion of it. Everybody sort of, there were, you could hear like little groans throughout the room. So it really is a magical moment because you, you can taste the labor in there. Um, you can taste all of the steps that went through there. It's, a, it's, a lux it's the luxury of time on, on that which I think is a really important thing. So you go from you know, cooking school and you're, you're finding you, you, sort of your place with this, and uh, then you're going to restaurants, but you took a turn when you went to restaurants and you were doing some of the molecular stuff, but you were also working at places where you could celebrate the ingredients that you, were, that you grew up with. How did that shift start to happen for you? It started to happen uh, when I started becoming uh, obsessed with seed saving, mm -hmm. which stemmed from working in restaurants and realizing that all of those varietals of, of plants and those animal breeds that I grew up with weren't available to chefs. That just blows my mind. It still blows my mind. It still blows my mind that, that the food that restaurants serve <laughs> and the ingredients and the quality of ingredients that um, that, that people serve. There's there's so much more delicious food out there. There's 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 food that is more nutritious and and carries a story of multiple generations and the wisdom of those generations. And you're not going to get that in a, in a Harry Cover uh, GMO green bean. I love that you keep just coming back to to Harry Cover. What's the purpose of a Harry Cover? Those little know, things. Man. Why they pick them that early? I know. Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah, because they're cute. I don't know, like these little little baby kind of things. <laughs> like, what's the point of a, like a, a, a microgreen, a little? Thing? Yes, let's figure out when it has the least amount of flavor, <laughs> but it's really pretty. Yeah, that's what we'll do, and we'll pay extra for it <laughs> because it's French. So, so we're saying maybe some of these dishes just have a marketing problem. So you take greasy greasy beans and. 
what do you call it? So people, so fancy people will buy them. <laughs> Greasy beans. <Yeah. laughs> I remember you were also serving leather britches, which is... Does a, anyone know what leather britches is? I do. Yes. <laughs> that makes me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you explain for the rest of the folks who... <laughs> well, the name comes from how they appear when they're being preserved. They look like a leather pair of britches hanging on the clothesline. And I grew up with this tradition my, my whole life. It was just part of the, the landscape. It was always, always there. And you take fully grown green beans <laughs> with, you, you, that, that's what you take pride in. You want that bean inside of the green bean to be enormous and full. Uh, and then you string them, and then you take a needle and thread, and you restring them. <laughs> um, and then you hang them by the fire. Uh, or outside or wherever, and they dry. And that's a way to preserve them. But what happens is the concentration of flavor, when you cook them, it's a meat substitute. It takes on, the sa you, you get the same emotion that you get from when you eat a slow braised piece of meat. Yeah. And vegetables are emotional. They really, really are. You, and I speak to you as somebody, we both have vegetable tattoos. Uh, I've got okra and he's got a whole farm <laughs> on, on his arm. But when I was, when I was deciding um, what I wanted to have inked on my body, um, it's, it's an heirloom uh, red variety that actually I grew it in, I live a few blocks from here and I grew it and managed to grow this red um, heirloom okra here in Brooklyn because it was really important to me to, to do that and have and, and carry that with me, this thing that maybe was a, a source of, of, of shame, of, of pain, of something, um, you know, to, to reclaim that kind of thing. And you've got, I think, like, there's yoga beets, there's all kinds of... I just, it's like a... Candy syrup, is there? Just lazy. It's like my visual aid when people ask what something is. I'm like, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's a commitment to have it um, on your skin like that. What was the first one, by the way? The first vegetable? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it was a cover-up of a really bad tattoo I had when I, I was 18. <laughs> it was the Chinese symbol for longevity. Oh, my God. <laughs> It is now a black radish, <laughs> which will be the name of my heavy metal band. Black radish. <laughs> you know, he does make music, too, by the way, so don't be surprised if he pulls out some equipment. Black radish. Black radish. I'm so here for... So when, who's going to open for black radish, like red okra for black radish? <laughs> Can't wait to share this bill with you. Um, <laughs> But let's talk about, I love the, this through notion in the book of micro-regionality because I feel like Southern food's been done all kinds of a disservice. Um, some of it by someone whose name might rhyme with Schmalishmeen, uh, who, who uh, you know, but be, people, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but a lot of people, sort of took a lazy route toward their thought about Southern food because they sort of saw what she was doing that might have roots in some recipes. I surely saw what she um, took from uh, other parts of, of the South and did not uh, credit to, to people, and especially people of color. And she did these versions of it that were super simplified and, and things, and it did a really, I think, a pretty tremendous disservice to what people think of as uh, as southern food, um, which is really 
as I think of it, like really fresh and vibrant and based in, in the land and in the animals and, and in, in the people. And it's also incredibly varied per where you go. The food in Tennessee is not the same as the food in Louisiana or the food in sort of other places. So mm. let's, let's talk through uh, that. Like, well, here, here's my theory. And I've been doing a lot of cleanup after Miss um, Schmeen. <laughs> because I, you know, I'm, I'm able to, I'm so lucky I get to travel to different parts of the world and teach people about Southern food. And unfortunately, that's a lot of people's only reference. But I think if you go all the way back and you start looking at the varietals of plants and the agricultural practices, the food was insanely delicious because we were breeding for flavor. We weren't breeding for convenience. That was everything. That was everything. And that food, you don't need to do much to it. But if you follow American history and you see how wars affect our food supply and you look at the Great Depression, you see that we then had to start breeding for convenience because we had to. And unfortunately, that breeds out a lot of flavor and also uh, nutrients. And so when you are used to green beans tasting extraordinary with just salt and water, being slow cooked and umami happening, you crave that and that's what your references. So when you get a green, when you get a green bean that has no flavor, you still crave that feeling. And so how do you get that? You dump fat in, or something smokier, you know, bacon, or or all those things. And so then you get hooked on that, and then we become addicted to sugars and and. It goes on and on and on. And I think what's so neat is now we're getting back to the point where we're reviving those, those ingredients and my new restaurant will be the, the, the temple for that. It's like, this is, our, this, this is what our food can be. This is what it used to be. And we're gonna explore the possibilities what it can be. What I really love is that a lot of people are, because you think vegetables and you think of you know, the vegetables that we, we have tattoos of, people are getting really geeky about grains in a way that I thoroughly appreciate. And there are some of the grain producers, people like at Anson Mills, and think, who are going back and maybe rediscovering some grains that had been lost in the mix because maybe they don't, you can't do them in quantity because they don't transport well or something. Um, but I know that you work with some of these, these farmers to make this happen. Can you talk through a little bit of the process about how you identify what is this thing um, and, and how, do you, how, how do you bring it back to life? It's an insane process. I mean, there's a reason people don't do it. It's, it's, it's expensive. And it's difficult. Um, a great example would be um, a variety of corn I have tattooed on my arm. Uh, it was my first seed saving experiment when I told Glenn Roberts of Anson Mills that I, I wanted to contribute to the repatriation of the Southern Pantry. And I had a piece of land and I was, I was pretending to farm. <laughs> um, and so I started growing this, this red corn that 
um, was there was only one person really that had the seed stock and was growing it. His name is is Ted Tuning, and I had to go to his house, meet with his family, and convince him that I was worthy of taking these seeds. I literally felt like I was asking to marry his daughter. <laughs> and I mean, it was an amazing day. And, and I convinced him, and he gave me a few ears. I immediately planted them. And the feeling that I got, knowing that I was responsible for that, that I was responsible for helping uh, to contribute to that seed bank and that seed supply. I hadn't even tasted this stuff. For all I know, it didn't taste good. And so we grow it, we, we, we obsess over it, we fight the deer for it, we fight the bugs for it, we fight the Charleston humidity for it, and I make cornbread with it, and it was the closest thing I'd ever come to being back in my grandmother's kitchen. And that's when I knew how, how important it was. I, I it's, it's, you have to taste it, you have to experience it, which is the importance of doing this work and, and having restaurants dedicated to that. But another farmer who was like-minded came in, this is 2007, another farmer who was like-minded came in and I told him the story, he asked for seeds, I gave them I think maybe one ear, um, and so every year he has grown that corn for seed stock, and what that means is he has a field full of a product that he's not selling. He's losing that, that real estate is there to generate money to feed his family. But he's, he's, you know, he's so dedicated to this that those are the sacrifices you have to make. And fast forward to this year's crop, 300,000 pounds of Jimmy Red Corn. It's, uh, it's, so it's Jimmy Red Corn. And people are people able to taste this uh, in, in some form? Because I, I know you grow stuff and don't eat it, you just save it. Um, is there somewhere that people can eat this Jimmy Red Corn? Funny you ask. WWW. <laughs> 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 um, I, I saw, I, my plan is to make a cornbread mix and I, I did a trial run, which was hilarious. Um, I thought we were gonna sell like 100 bags. We sold 1,100 bags. <laughs> And uh, we had to put... Oh, there's some right there. There it is. We had to put those stickers on by hand on the front and the back and to put it in the package and write the address on it by hand and take it to the post office. And it only took two weeks. <laughs> so now we have a new crop and uh, we're going to be selling that very soon. Am I nuts or did the people at Highwire Distillery do a Jimmy Red Corn uh, drink of some sort? Yes, and I actually helped make some of that um, pre-rehab. <laughs> <laughs> and it was amazing. The, the fat that came up during the distillation process was actually was almost this color. Uh, it was a little more yellow, and it tasted like banana Laffy Taffy. <laughs> so wild. It's so crazy. Um, and now to see people drinking that bourbon after it's been aging, and that's just another way that that story continues to be told, and you keep grabbing people's attention, and you keep it in the, in the, in the discussion, and that's how we keep things alive. I hope people are gonna get this book really dirty. I am a, I'm a person who, you know, I, 
for, I, I, just, I just get the cookbooks dirty so they don't just become this museum object. So you use them so you can, so there are appropriate stains on the page. There's gravy on the gravy page. There's, you know, whatever, like the, the thing that you made on that particular thing. And I'm hoping, so this, this book is really beautiful because it goes through all the pantry items that you can make in addition to recipes and staples and things. Um, we're going to turn it over for questions soon, but I'd love for you to take us on a little trip, make us a fantasy meal of if you could pull together um, your various micro regions and things, what would be on your side table that you would have? What would be this meal that you would make to explain your South to people? My South or the South in general? My area? You're or? the one that makes you in particular happy. Everybody's gonna have a different version mm -hmm. of this, but I'm really curious to know what, what would the groaning board be? Yes. So my story, my journey is half Appalachia, half low country. Um, and that's, that's the food that I cooked, that I cook, and that's the food that, I'm, that I crave, and, and that's the food that I know, and that's the food that I'm passionate about. So the, 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 the idea of taking, and this is actually uh, mentioned in the book, the idea of taking a Charleston dish of shrimp and grits, but saying, what does this taste like in Appalachia? It's going to be covered in ramps and morels, and that's going to taste like that place. And that would be def a definite uh, dish on the groaning board. Yeah. My mother's chicken and dumplings has to be there. I won't cook it because mine's terrible. <laughs> Hers is so much better. Damn it. <laughs> I don't know how she does it. She'll never tell me the secret. That's okay. Um, and then the way I grew up eating, we had, we would have very simple meals like soup beans or chicken dumplings or uh, very, very simple base dishes. And then we would have lots of little dishes on the table that would provide a sweet element, a sour element, an acidic element, a super vibrant, fresh, like raw onion, um, something spicy, some, you know, and that, to me, that's my grandmother's table. And eating that way and watching the old timers eat that way is, is how I still, f it's actually how I create a dish now. I, I, was, I grew up so used to having all those parts of your, my tongue being stimulated throughout a meal because it's how you elevate a humble ingredient. That's how you make a, a bowl of beans not so boring to an 11 year old um, three days a week. Um, now I crave it three days a week. But that's, I think, that tells a huge, huge part of the story. What's for, what's for dessert? Yes, so dessert. <laughs> My grandmother made this stack cake from apples and sorghum that, like, I, I mean, it's like intoxicating how, how, how delicious it is. And it was always a very special occasion because sorghum you only it was like a it was like a country ham you you harvested it once a year and you cooked it down and then you take your share and that's what you have for the rest of the season you have to make it last and so anytime she would make a cake with um, apples that were either dried near the fire in slices just like the leather britches or cooked down into an apple butter i mean the work that goes into that simple layer cake that most people would just look at and not really think too much about is 
great example of, of Appalachian cookery. Lovely. And I saw you not long ago, within the last couple months or something, and you were about to give your little baby perfect son his first <laughs> bite of solid food. What was it? So Leo is seven months old, and I've been so excited about feeding him. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I've had these extravagant tasting menus planned. <laughs> and he hates it all. <laughs> he won't eat any of it. And, and I thought it was just me, and I was talking to Dave Chang last night, who has a baby who's one day older than Leo, and he's having the same problem. But his baby loves the little puree squeeze packets. Leo's the same way. I will take heirloom candy roaster squash from a Cherokee tribe and blank area of Appalachia and cook it in this crazy contraption to distill as much flavor and nutrients, puree it in this crazy expensive blender. I, I bought a super fine mesh tammy. I'm like scraping it. <laughs> I put it on the spoon. Here's what he does. It's like, it's not a lemon. But then I give him the damn squeeze packet. He loves it. <laughs> it's what's in those things. Oh my God, he's gonna be taking Lunchables to school. You're gonna <laughs> have to change your name. <laughs> I don't know what to do, but I did feel better that Dave's having the same problem. <laughs> and and, and Leo has a temperature tonight and stuff, so let's all send really positive mm -hmm. vibes out to that sweet little guy who is an, an Instagram star. <laughs> but I think we're gonna have uh, somebody with a microphone out in the audience uh, back there if anybody has any questions for Sean. Got it right over there. Um, over, sorry, over here. Uh, so uh, you guys talked about like micro regions and the influence of immigrants into the South and how that people try to find the flavor of their home. What do you think is the future with recent immigrants like Vietnamese, Indian, et cetera, to what I would maybe say with capital N and S, the new South and the future of that food? I love this question because this is what I've been thinking the most about, especially with the new restaurant and it, it was something that kept crossing my mind when I was writing this book and finishing it up. If we look at that formula that I spoke about of, of how a cuisine is formed, it's, it's the geography of a place, the ingredients that thrive there, and the people who brought those ingredients there. If that's the formula, if that's how a cuisine naturally forms, and if that's southern food, what's Southern food gonna be like in 2025 in Houston? That's Southern food. That's the future of Southern food and we should embrace that. And it's just more stories to tell. Yeah, I like that. The South gets to be a lot of different things and I think it's better for it in a big way. Who else? Good evening. Hi, John. Hey. First time uh, caller, long time listener. <laughs> I love saying that. Can you speak to your type of cooking relative to the rate of obesity in southern states? Specifically Kentucky, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. Yeah, so it, I touched on it earlier, but here, here's my theory. 
Mother Nature purposely made the most nutritious food the most delicious to trick us because we always reach for pleasure. That's the first thing that, that we reach for. And so if the foods that we're serving people and the foods that are available in stores have no nutrients, well, you need to eat more of them and you need to add sugar and that's why we should save seeds. And I, I also note, I think, the lack of access to nutritious foods is kind of an act of violence upon poor people, frankly. And, oh, uh, it breaks we, my heart. Yep, and we, uh, we need to be better about that in a big, big way. And I honestly think that this book is going to go a really long way toward explaining why, uh, why this kind of food is important and should be celebrated and maybe reclaimed from, from some of the stuff that is more uh, commercially produced and does not have all the good stuff in it. Yeah, I think we should also really pay close attention to the idea that it is an addiction no different than alcohol. When we become addicted to caffeine and sugar and fats, these things that cause a, a sensation in our bodies that we then crave, that's, that's an addiction that is tough. I mean, you see people, I mean, I, have, I know people who drink two liters of Coca-Cola a day. I don't think we're designed for that. I used to drink two to four liters of Diet Coke every yeah. day, so yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, that addiction is as serious and needs to be taken as serious as any other addiction. Okay, we've got one over here. Hey there. Uh, well, it's a couple, two questions here, I guess. Um, and only, only loud one. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Stems from something uh, you mentioned in in the uh, the talk uh, around seven o'clock, seven thirty, um, and it's a term. But you know, I guess the first question is, you know, how do you begin to change the perception of, you know, Southern cuisine being basic and, and, and something that's, you know, not complex or advanced. And, you know, the term you, you coined, and, and, you know, I'm going to trademark it for you, is um, hillbilly umami. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of the first question. Um, well, uh, this is uh, my son, and I married a Spaniard, so you showed us three different hams and, um, tonight, and they were all extraordinary um, we we come from uh, Italian and Spanish hams uh, prosciutto di parma and uh, habugo and these extraordinary hams and you showed us three beautiful hams tonight and we don't really get to see them um, they don't seem to be available, so. Um, There's a list uh, in the back of this book. <laughs> yeah, so um, that, that is something that, that I would like to source for uh, my, my restaurant, my, um, and so can you well, tell us more about Well, there's not much that? of it, and I try to buy most of it. <laughs> Pages 368 and but 369 at, of your book will... Mm. Absolutely, the, the term, uh, the uh, umami, uh, hillbilly, umami. Hill, hillbilly <laughs> umami struck me and I will for, 
forever remember that. <laughs> yeah, I think both of those questions go, go hand in hand. And those are the things that I worry about. Those are the things that I think about. And I've, I've come to the conclusion that I just have to do. I just have to do my best to make the right decisions every day and execute, 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 and let that food speak for itself. Do we have any women with questions? <laughs> Looking around. Over here. Hi, I am Danny. Um, grew up in Florida, which is often a state that struggles with its identity in the South and is looked down upon for not being a part of the South. Um, what would you identify as some staples out of the state of Florida that really help represent its Southern heritage and culture? So, <laughs> when I made the rule, when I, when I opened Husk, I made the rule that we would only purchase food grown in the South. I was really thankful for Florida. <laughs> Try finding citrus um, in Virginia. Uh, you know, I think, well, Florida's enormous, and there's, it's really, the, the discussion is how many different cuisines do you think are in Florida? I mean, I would guess 15. I would guess 15 individual, distinct, unique, wonderful cuisines. And yeah, you started speaking just like we were talking. It's like, Sometimes, I don't know, we, it, it, I, I experienced the same thing as a kid when I started moving around. It's like you have to be proud of where you're from because it's all there. It's all right in front of you. It all exists. Every place has something special that belongs to that place and, and should be a, a sense of pride. Okay, I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> because this is a question that just came up. Uh, there was a book that you referenced, a recipe, which was uh, what Mrs. Fisher knows about Southern cooking that she did on the mind of a chef. And I feel like you highlighted it in particular because, this is set up, sorry. I feel like you highlighted it in particular because Southern cooking, uh, the importance of it, there's black essence that is very important to it. So why did you feel like it was important for you to highlight that? And in this book, is there any reference or anything that you highlighted in particular that references to that? That book is possibly the most important book that exists for Southern food because it was the first book that actually credited the person who wrote it, which was an African-American. And if you look back at all of the Southern cookbooks, those those weren't, those, those were written, those recipes, those dishes came from, uh, from, from the African-Americans. And like, it's, it's something that I've, I've seen, I've experienced. And, and that book, when, when you open it, it talks about that. This is the, this is the first book that, that, um, that credited the actual person uh, making the food. Uh, that's it's a it's a great example of why 
we have trouble dealing with sensitive and difficult issues. We're scared to talk about it. We're scared to have the conversation. We're scared to speak up. We're scared to listen because we don't like feeling pain or we don't like feeling anything awkward. We run from that and we reach for pleasure as quickly as possible. And I believe that that is one of the most beautiful things about food is it's the great equalizer. You know, when you're at a barbecue restaurant and you're sitting down and eating Rodney Scott's barbecue, it doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, everyone's equal at that table at that time. And that's when true vulnerable conversation can happen and you can start to get to know people and, and to know what needs to be addressed and to know what needs to be discussed. And I think we're starting to move in that direction for sure. Is there a place that people can access the, that book? Is the text available? Is it? There was an actual copy up for auction the other day, and I think it went for $12,000. Mm -hmm. Hello, friend. <laughs> I will say also there's an exhibit coming up at, at MOFAD in, in 2020, and, and it's about the roots of African-American cooking and uh, the it's fantastic artifacts and um, crediting people with recipes. And it's just, it's gonna be, I don't know exactly when this is opening, but it's February. so, February, it's so important and everybody needs to go and yeah. see this because American cuisine owes so much to everybody who's being represented in this show that's coming up. Yeah, and a lot of those books are available on Google Books. Mm -hmm. a, a lot of my copies are printouts of those. Maybe one or two more questions, Kat? I like question up call. front. Up front? Hi. <laughs> Hello. Uh, I'm a chef myself, and I'm actually moving to Germany literally tomorrow. Whoa. Whoa. Thanks for hey. making it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Whoa. I was wondering, because I had a restaurant here, and I would love to open one up there, if you had any tips as far as being able to introduce this type of food to a culture and a palate that isn't used to hardly anything that would be in a southern cookbook, because I'm from New Orleans myself, and that's the kind of food that I do, and want to bring that there and incorporate it into that kind of culture. What an amazing opportunity you have. Wow. I, I can't even imagine having that opportunity. That's just, that's just amazing. My advice is to realize that you can't do it all in the beginning. And you have to realize what you're capable of executing and what people are able to take in and, and absorb and understand. And that may require holding back a lot of really great ideas um, and, and create a discipline for yourself to start simple, gain the trust, and then just like, just like grandmas, you start adding in secret stuff. Don't you have to tell anybody? Yeah. What's the restaurant called? Uh, the one I had here was Cafe Buku. Beautiful. And what's the new one? Uh, I'm not sure yet. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Please, Let us um, yeah, shoot me a DM on Instagram. I need to follow that. <laughs> okay, we got one last one, and Sean gets to pick the last one. I'm not taking that responsibility. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Why does cheese have to be melted? <laughs> Up front here? 
Uh, knowing the relationship you had with your grandmother and how much she instilled a love of food um, and your relationship with food, what would you want the younger generation to learn and embrace about your era of Southern food? Um, that no matter where you're from or what other people uh, think about where you're from, that's where you're from and that's that's the food that you're supposed to be cooking and that's the food that you're supposed to be eating and that's that's all you can do. Thank you. Thank you so much to everybody for coming. This book is extraordinary. There are more copies out there and of uh, Sean's other book and of my book. And he will be available for photo ops and questions and all of the stuff. And uh, we've taped tonight's, uh, tonight's uh, talk. So if you can listen to it on the Communal Table podcast, which is on oh, food and wine. I didn't know that. That's and awesome. uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming. Go spread the gospel. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you.